hello and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Um, back here again with my friend, Pastor Jan Prorok, uh, CREC pastor in Karlovy Vary in the Czech Republic. Did I say that right? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> All right. And um, I uh, mean, Fertwerth. Yeah, Fertwerth. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's about as... Yeah, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on from my pronunciation of um, Eastern European languages. Um, uh, those of you who are at All Saints will know that we had Pastor Prorok uh, preaching for us uh, back at the beginning of October. Uh, we're actually recording this at the beginning of October, but this will go out in a couple of weeks' time because uh, when I asked people for questions about Pastor Prorok's really um, wonderful and illuminating and moving sermon, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon on the second, uh, from the first uh, of October, and the podcast that was a follow-up to that. I got a bunch more questions, and and I was going through them uh, in the emails, and Pastor Prorok said, so why are they asking me all these questions? And I, I said, in all seriousness, I think it's because they heard you pastoring them from the pulpit. And these it's not that these are not questions that I've been asked. Some of them I have been asked, but I think it's mm. very striking that they, they heard you um, ministering to them from the Word of God for 45 minutes, and then they got to know you a little bit in forum, and then they wanted to hear more of your wisdom. And, um, and I'm privileged, really, just to sit and just to talk with you about some of the things that uh, you've uh, that you shared with us, and some questions that arose in connection with that. So, I, there are three questions, and okay. we maybe—I don't know how long we'll take. But we'll go. Yeah. And the first one, um, this is not meant whimsically, I don't think, but it came from a, a lady in our congregation who said that she wanted to know about the tattoos on your hands. Yes. And so you just hold them up. Let's see them. Okay. So there's some that's some pretty um, solid Christian bling tattoos there, right? There's the Cairo symbol. There you have some other tattoos in various other places, elbows. Yes. Okay, I won't ask you to show us those. Um, and so here's a topic that could <laughs> that could generate some discussion. Um, what rather than me um, uh, uh, polluting the ground with my opinions, why don't you tell us a little bit about, if you don't mind, about yeah, the history sure. that is behind those markings and on your hands? Yeah. Okay. Uh, these are actually the first tattoos that I got, uh, and uh, of course. I got them already as a Christian. That's why they're, they're Christian symbols. The reason why I had them was that after I became a Christian, even though uh, becoming a Christian radically changed my life, I had a period of backsliding. And I sort of, in a way, you can say I wanted to mark myself out as belonging to Christ and remind myself that I belong to Christ. Mm -hmm. So those were the two primary reasons, which you could call just one reason. And... As some of you may know, I came out of Satanism. I had a radical conversion experience. But then, after I came to local churches in the Czech Republic, they weren't really interested to baptize me, or they were very interested to baptize me if I become a member in their local church and start paying the tithe and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I was more than willing to join a local congregation. I just said, well, I don't see it scripturally that there would be uh, any tight connection between becoming baptized and becoming a member of a specific local church. I don't see John the Baptist starting his local church, so I'll be glad to join your congregation. Mm. I just don't think you should have that as a condition of baptism, or if so, please prove it to me from the scriptures. Mm. And that didn't happen. 
And thus, these churches weren't, weren't willing to baptize me. So for a couple of years, basically three years, I would be uh, a professing Christian. I would come to church every Sunday. I'd be praying and all of that, but nobody was willing to baptize me. And after I had uh, this backsliding period, I wanted to make a statement to myself. Hey, these mm. hands should serve Christ and I belong to Christ. Mm. And thus, I got it tattooed on my body. And I can look back with the theology of baptism that I now have, and I can say, well, I was looking for what baptism was supposed to give me, but nobody ever explained to me that that's what baptism is supposed to do. And so in a way, it was my professional faith. I, I baptized myself in ink, you can say. Right. So it's interesting because that prompts a couple of thoughts in me. Um, and the first is about baptism and membership. Um, and you're a Presbyterian minister now. So, you know, it's quite common for churches to say, well, um, the the commitment of uh, church membership to a particular congregation is something that ought to precede baptism. And so it's fascinating to hear you with such candidness recounting a thought process that, well, at the very least, it's it's not one that I'd agree with now. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know what you'd say about that. Well, the thing for me wasn't, I, you know, I, I'm just reading the Bible. Right, right. I don't seen this in the scripture can you please prove it to me scripturally if you yeah. can prove it to me from scripture i'm more than willing to do it and they weren't able to do and that. they weren't able to right. do it right right so it's interesting because that that speaks to another issue that we've talked about which is the the immaturity of the church there which an, an immature church that that doesn't have clear biblical justifications for things that it's doing even if the things that it's doing happen to be right is is not likely to be able to generate maturity and wisdom in its congregants and it mm -hmm. sounds like from your description of that as a period of backsliding that's that's kind of what happened to you yes so i mean let's ask the more pointed question and, and we'll be honest this is a question on which christians are going to disagree yep. it's also one of which i have opinions how do you reflect now on that decision i mean you've got these tattoos on on your hands um yeah do you want to talk about that yeah sure tell, no tell us what you think about that decision yeah. yeah a certain minister in the crc asked me at the council and yeah. i said well you know this only proves that becoming a christian doesn't mean you become smart <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah i think it wasn't the wisest thing to do. it wasn't in the you know in the top lifts you know 100 smartest things you can do it wasn't anywhere there so mm. i wouldn't do it again uh, okay, uh, it's a part of my story. It's a way to start conversations yeah. now, but I'm getting I'm <laughs> yes. getting rid of the you're getting, tattoos. You're getting removed. Yeah, Because yeah. 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 you know there are many things that you know we think okay, I'm I'm getting a Christian tattoo. Therefore, you know that's something that I want to keep for the rest of my life. Yeah. So that's not something that I'm gonna regret. But it's not that simple. No. Because no. you know you get once once you get the ink, you get sort of frozen in time with those specific yes. you know yes. things that you believe back then, and it might change. We think you know Christianity is always the same, but we all go through a progression in mm. our faith, and also I would say it doesn't reflect theology of the body well mm. and properly mm -hmm. so, so flesh flesh those two things out for us if you would so so the first one you're frozen in time the second the theology of the body i mean you've because you've got a prohibition in leviticus 19 against tattoos which is partly the theology of the body that lies behind that particular old testament law but the eschatology point where you're 
freezing yourself in time. I mean, this is precisely what some people want to do. So let's say um, I've known of terribly painful pastoral situations where people have lost a family member, perhaps a sibling, a loved one, and they've wanted to mark their beloved relative or friend's life in that way. And your frozen in time point is precisely what I'd want to say in that context. Yeah. But but the issue is that in this even in the scripture, we are never stuck. God always takes us forward. God right. always takes us as the church and as individuals. We go from glory to glory. We are moving yes, forward yes. and we can't hold back the past. We can never stay in the past. And it's unwise to try to do so. And it's and it's impossible because that's yeah. just not the way God does mm, things. Mm. See, what's what's fascinating again here is just hearing you talk, Jan. It's um, you've got what sounds to me like pretty much the same view that I have about this issue, which is a nuanced, I hope, a nuanced yes. and textured view of this matter. Because what I'm not going to do is stand up and anathematize everybody who's got ink, yes, even if it's uh, a dope Hebrew tat, you know, with. Um, Ruach Elohim correctly pointed on their bulging bicep. Yeah. You know, it's like um, what we really want to do, though, is to to recognize that well, we all make mistakes. <laughs> One of the things about tattoo mistakes is that they're mistakes that endure, which is part of the problem. You you're 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 committing yourself to not just the content of what the tattoo says, but the fact of it, and. It's not something that's commended in scripture. It's it's something which is uh, it's going against the way that God shapes us through our own personal history and changes us over time. And the medium is the message. Still in this context, right. the medium right. is the message. So you can't just say, well, you know, it portrays a good Christian thing, so it's okay. No, there's way more to it. And of course, as you said, you know, this is nuance. It's not like, okay, if you have because i know that even among our ministers there yeah, would be some yeah. that would say that leviticus doesn't talk specifically about tattoos but about markings Marking for the body. dead yeah. yes. and that okay it talks only about a specific like mourning ritual yeah for the deceased and thus it doesn't actually talk about tattoos at all and let's for the sake of the argument let's say it doesn't yes. well that still doesn't mean that tattoos are okay yes. or smart or appropriate for ministers of the gospel yeah it's, it's funny how how sometimes there's a temptation to become it's a temptation for hermeneutical maximalists to suddenly become minimalists very minimalist at yes. the point where their moral convictions are challenged um let's move on from that um the, the the theology of the body point though is is another fascinating and related topic because which, which has impact on many other things many other aspects of christian life do, do you want to give us a a, a brief sketch of the the theology of the body issue and and how it relates to this yeah theology of the body that's a whole you know right that's that's a huge topic but generally i don't think and you know of course i'm going to be speaking in broad terms but if you look at our culture and you compare our culture where we are today mm. and how many people you have with various body modifications and tattoos and piercings and mm. tongue splits and all of that with what we had 200 years ago where we were a little bit more connected with let's nature say and the world and nature and biblical thinking yeah. you know it shows you something it, 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 
Could mm. there be a connection? Because mm. we are always, of course, you know, we can start with the fact, okay, God created us good. Yes. So our bodies are good. Of course, they are marred by sin, but generally speaking, they are good. They are given God given dignity. They are given God given glory and beauty. Mm. And, you know, God created us in a certain way because he wanted to and because he said that this is the way it's good. Yeah. And then the next thing that we need to realize, we constantly communicate, especially, you know, we being the image bearers of God, mm. we communicate about God all the time. And we yes. can do it either truthfully or falsely, but we can never get into a place where we don't communicate. You're always, you're always saying something with you always, you deport yourself. You and deport yourself. and I, I would just ask my, you know, tattooed brethren, okay, if you have a tattoo, what does it say about God that is true? How does getting a tattoo mm. help you to communicate about God more truthfully? Mm. And there you're back to the medium is the message point, which is, that, just so you know that some of you know this, um, that's uh, a tagline from Marshall McLuhan, the, the culture and cultural and media uh, intellectual from the late 20th century, who influenced Neil Postman very greatly and others who've, who, and the, the point that he's making is, um, it matters what, how you communicate what it is you communicate, the, the medium necessarily shapes the content of the, mm -hmm. the, the communication. Now, this is familiar to us, just in biblical studies. If you read uh, Peter Lightheart's book, Deep Exegesis, mm. he makes a point along similar lines where he says you can't get the Bible and sort of abstract kernels of theological truth from it that are separate from the literary form in which those truths are communicated. Uh, so the form, poetic, narrative, uh, epistolary, gospel, whatever, is part of what God is saying. So the literary structures of mm -hmm. the Bible are part of what the Bible is saying, and they they comprise part of what is being said. And so, to write something handwritten with beautiful handwriting on a card and give it to somebody is different from the same words written on a text message. Yes, it's just even if they're the same words. And so, again, it's the Ruach Elohim, Spirit of God, tattoo on the bicep, isn't saying quite the same as what the person who goes and gets it might even intend to be saying by it yeah but you know and i would like to make sure that we go a step further you know this is not just relating to, to tattoos or you know mm -hmm. modi body modifications which might be you know um controversial topic among christians this yes. relates to everything that relates to what our household looks like yes. this relates to how we clothe all of these things are important yes. because yes. they are constantly communicating yes they're saying something about us yeah and more importantly about God, because yeah. we can't help but talk about God all the time because mm. we're image bearers. Mm. So, you know, if our brothers with tattoos feel, you know, offended, I would like to offend many more people <laughs> and think, okay, how do you, An you know, opportunity offender. <laughs> yeah, w w what clothes do we take when we go outside? What clothes do yeah. we take, or just to be more conservative, when we go to church, how do we clothe for church? Yeah. How do, yeah. How do we present ourselves? And, you know, this doesn't relate just to clothing, but general manners. Mm. How do we behave around the table? All of these mm. things are tightly connected with what it means to be image bearers. Right. So I, I, just for the sake of pastoral, um, not completeness, but awareness here, uh, I want to be clear. Uh, I know that there are a bunch of people at All Saints who have tattoos. And I know 
there are probably one or two others who have tattoos that aren't so visible. And um, the aim of this has not been to find a way of talking to you without needing to, to summon the, the courage to come and talk to you. The aim of this has been to draw upon the actual experience of a pastor who I don't have tattoos, he does. And as the reason I've not raised this subject in pastoral contexts has been because I've not thought it to be such a massive priority, but even things which are a lower priority on the overall scale of things do warrant talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that this will be, uh, for those of you who uh, have tattoos, for those of you who have a degree of admiration for people who have tattoos, and so that's part of the picture of the role model that you have, perhaps your parents have a tattoo or two or three, I hope that what this will do is to foster a thoughtful, charitable, uh, theologically aware and biblically sensitive conversation among us. Because here's the thing, we, we all have choices to make, and some of those choices place us in a position where we can't so easily go back. And in, in a sense, all choices are irreversible, but some are more irreversible than others. And so at the very least, to examine with prudence and an awareness of Pastor Prorok's experience, some of these questions I think might be helpful. So if that prompts questions for you, I would love to hear from you. Uh, not because this is going to be the drum that I thump for the next six months, but simply because for some of you, it might be uh, <coughs> a, a drum that sounds particularly loud in your ears just at the present time. So give me a call, as always. It'd be a delight to talk to you. I, I want to pick up the next question before we run out of, before I run out of your time. Um, <laughs> and uh, so again, th these are questions that were sent in from members of the congregation at All Saints. Uh, this is a fascinating one and somewhat deep. We could probably talk about this for quite a long time. I'm going to read it more or less word for word and then we'll go from there. Uh, this is more in relation to Pastor Prorok's testimony, which you gave a portion of at Forum. And you've repeated a bit here. Can you speak to the way that our religious duty in quotes and our religious affections grow together as we mature in faith so religious duty you've got to do this obey the word of god religious affections i should love and desire god's word and god's ways how do they grow together and particularly <coughs> uh, how do we respond when we think we're in a position of abundant duty but not abundant affection or maybe, maybe vice versa. But let's start with that. I know what I ought to do. I'm feeling less of a rich and deep and intense desire to do it. <laughs> well, I would say <clears throat> an important passage in this context. And by the way, if you need to just pause and cough that you guys can wait while Pastor Proc coughs and clears his throat. <coughs> right ahead. <coughs> Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> this is the this is Texas analogies. We're not going to edit this out, by the way. Um, I very much appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Are you feeling okay? Yeah, um, guess yeah. so. Like when I first moved <clears throat> to Texas, I realized within about a month that I'm allergic to America, <coughs> or at least this part of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, every now and then I have coughing fit uh, shortly before standing up for a sermon, which is slightly unnerving experience. Um, anyway, so religious affections religious duties. We've all found ourselves at different times feeling like I, I know what I ought to do, but I don't feel the 
emotional concomitants of that so sharp and intensely yeah i i think in this context <laughs> well should, should i tell you what i think and <laughs> um, while, while um, we wait for pastor proc to, to compose himself um the, the the religious affections point is a i mean it's a line from jonathan edwards right yes uh, it's a book uh, on the religious affections um and one of the things that Edwards says there is that um, true religion in great part consists in religious affections, godly affections. And that's that's a quote from, from part one of the book. And he's getting at the point there that many of the commands of Scripture, many of the examples of Scripture, many of the texts of scripture which we look to for matters of discipleship command affections in particular and then he'll go through a whole list of them like love joy lack of anxiety contentment and so on and so forth and so what what we can't do we can't reduce uh, faithfulness to just a matter of a cold-hearted submission mm. to commands, right? Yeah. Because we're, we're whole beings, we're integrated beings. And so, and th that's what prompts the question, right? So well, what do we do when we don't <laughs> feel that? Or I would say what I wanted to say before I started choking <laughs> is uh, what Lord Jesus says in uh, John 15, that he gives us his commands so that his joy would be in us and so that mm. our joy might be full. Because we sometimes tend to separate you know communion with god and union with christ from obedience that you know mm. i have my feelings about jesus and then right. there are the commands that he gives but he gives us the commands so that our enjoyment of him would come through that the, the commands that we have and reflecting god mm. as his image bearers through obeying his commands that's mm. what the tool that's one of the instruments that's given us so that we can enjoy god more right. fully right so that we can know him more fully yes yes so the the obedience is not separate from those affections it's a tool to enkindle those affections and to taste them so there will be one of the most important things i would say to realize in this you know it's not just god giving me a list of commands it's god giving me his good law, giving me his good commandments so that I can taste and them and right. him through mm. it. Mm. So, I mean, so, so, you know, it's not, if you're married, it's not like, it's the rule that you're supposed to bring roses. No, you, you love and therefore you mm. bring those roses or that bottle of wine so that you can sit down and so that you can taste mm. the goodness of your covenant relationship. Mm. I like that. And, and that, that actually speaks not just to marriage as an illustration, but other relationships. But let's run with marriage. I mean, uh, if, if I were giving counsel to a, a young couple, I would say, yeah, you definitely want to have a couple of evenings a week mm -hmm. for each other, date night or whatever you want to call it. And especially in the early years of marriage, before children are on the scene, those are precious years to really be kindling uh, intimate knowledge of one another through conversation and just spending time together and talking and uh, go for walks have meals together and now if somebody said okay so what's the rule how much do I have to do yes. 
I'd be like, okay, we we, we got some work to do here. Yeah. Um, the the if you want advice, I'd say two or three times a week for a young couple without children. But this isn't a rule which I want you to observe. It's it's what will kindle in you precisely that love, which is the godly affection mm-hmm. about which Edwards was talking. And and remember, uh, go on, you got you got, yeah. And you know the, the affection here, we're the affection comes mm-hmm. later. It comes from the truth. It comes from that covenantal yeah. relationship. It it's not my goal. It's the result. It's mm. it's something that flows from the relationships. Because many people can be in that place of, I want to feel the right, you know, Edwardsian affections, and I don't feel them, and I'm a bad Christian because of that. Mm. That's missing the point. Yes. We need to learn about God. We need to learn who He is. And once we realize whom God is, and especially who He is for us in Christ, yes. that will bring those it. affections. That will bring that loyalty. That will bring mm. that joy and it will help of course you know we are sinners so it will not be automatic it's something that we will need to pray for and ask god for but the affections don't flow just in the air they come based on god's revealed truth Mm. i like that because what it reminds us is that edwards was not a romantic Mm -hmm. Uh, he was living before the romantic movement and so he wasn't polluted with this idea that we are stuck with without realizing it which is the post-romantic notion that the only things that are genuine are things that flow spontaneously from emotion that's actually not a biblical idea yes Uh, if you love me you will obey my commands um this is love for god to obey his commands Who, who is the mother who loves her child is it the mother who feels squishy about her child at three in the morning when it's squawking and needs feeding but lies in bed feeling squishy and goes back to sleep? Or is it the mother who feels like, oh my goodness, I'm just exhausted and this child is driving me nuts, but gets up and feeds the child? It's the latter mother. And it's that mother in whom will be kindled over time the resulting deep connection with that child. So it's it's not, in other words, this... When we, we, we read Edwards, we mustn't read it through the kind of refracting prism of mm-hmm. romanticism. So that we imagine him to be saying, just doing what God says is wrong. What we should be thinking rather is that we're integrated beings and our faithfulness and commitment will create over time with ebbs and flows that are normal in this created world, the the love of the heart and the other affections that go with it. And that's why liturgical worship is so important because mm-hmm. it trains us. Yeah. and. I think we all who have been you know, attending liturgical services for a while, the set given a liturgy is what liberates mm. us so that we can experience the fellowship, so that we can yes. experience and breathe in the truths that the liturgy teaches us. Mm. So actually, liturgical worship is a great tool that teaches us to turn away from this idol of spontaneity mm. and teaches our affections right. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and wonderful. And uh, it goes back to a conversation I had uh, with Kit Chelishaw, Pastor Chelishaw, we recorded it earlier today, just talking about how liturgy trains us in so many different ways. And we were talking in the context of it trains us in who are supposed to be our leaders and our role models in life because the liturgical leaders 
and the leaders within the church are supposed to correspond, but also it, it trains us by placing constraints on us as to words and actions and a posture and those postures inculcate affections. You know, mm -hmm. if you kneel down, you feel a certain way about what you're doing. And that's reinforced by the words you're saying and by the context in which that kneeling for confession appears in the service. Ditto when you stand and raise your hands to praise God, or if we stand to sing, or if you sit to eat or to hear the word, all these things are their actions. We just obey what we're told to do. And the liturgy is training our affections. I, I guess I want to say there's a there's the other side of the question where somebody has affections without obedient response. And I think it's probably somewhat easier to dispose of that one, isn't it? <laughs> well, just... yeah, if the affections are not based on truth and if they are not connected with obedience, mm. then you're just lying to yourself if we yeah. are being yeah. very honest. It's, an, it's another kind of internal disconnection, isn't it? Yeah, because, you know, there's plenty of New Age people who feel nice about Jesus. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're Christians, doesn't mean they even know him. Mm. So... But, but maybe it is more common than we realize. Um, perhaps it's particularly common among people who are internally wired to feel or express emotions more freely, but actually whose, whose lives in secret, or maybe not so much in secret, are filled with sins of omission or commission. You know, it's possible for you know, a, a young person to be able to give all the right answers and to feel enthusiastic about church, but to be really quite rude to their parents mm -hmm. or really quite lazy with their schoolwork. And you just think, okay, listen, son, um, shape up. This is not acceptable. This is not how you show love for Christ. Mm -hmm. um, this is love for God to, to do what he says. And you know, th that's why I mentioned when what the Lord says in John 15, that joy is tightly connected with mm -hmm. obedience. And that's the same in the Galatians. In Galatians, when we have the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is associated with love. Mm. And love loves God and loves neighbor, that is, keeps the commandments. Yeah. So if I just feel happy, clappy, well, it doesn't mean mm. that it's in any way biblical enough. Yes. We are sinners, and just like we can think thoughts that are untrue, we can have affections and feelings that are in no way connected to reality. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I feel something doesn't mean it's actually true. Yeah, we're not going to baptize our feelings as though that just makes us right. Okay, so we've got one final question. And this is a completely different subject. It's more a question about what we might, in our context in America, be able to learn from the social and political context of the church in the Czech Republic. So I'll read it. It's a somewhat long question, but I'll, it's very clear. So I'll read it. In the West, we've been watching the rapid moral decline of our institutions, schools, corporations, governments, churches, and many faithful Christians have flocked to the so-called Benedict option in an attempt to preserve the fire of traditional Orthodox Christianity. Now we'll come to that Benedict option in a second, because it's a particular phrase as a particular valence. In your experience, in a different corner of the world with different social, political and religious trends at play, does a similar narrative ring true? And if so, 
What are some of the successes or failures that you've seen that might instruct us here in America? Or are you experiencing a completely different movement of Christianity? Is it like on the up? Or, um, and if so, what might you offer as a word of advice to the American church? So in a sense, there's two questions, not two questions, there's two parts to the question. There's in the West, church attendance and broadly speaking, Christian profession is declining. Response of some especially conservative and reformed people has been the so-called Benedict Option. Let's deal with that first. So the Benedict Option, a book by Rod Dreher. Did you, have you read it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So describe, let, let's, before we go in and, and critique, because <laughs> I can see something coming, um, just describe the, the so-called Benedict Option and, and why it is so-called. Well, the way I've read Dreher, basically what Dreher presents is we should have Christian community. And in that Christian community, there should be personal holiness of each one of us. That's an important part. We should be ready to suffer for the faith. We should disciple our children. And we should, in that Christian community, take care of our people, be it providing jobs, being willing to help in a charitable ways. And that is pretty much it. Plus, there's a lot of marketing on the top. That's the Benedict <laughs> option. Right. Okay. So, so I, I think I'm with you in the... Um, uh, there is a, a monetization project going on here is a branding project, but there, there's a historical component. So if, uh, the Benedict option takes its name from the Benedictine monks yes. uh, in the middle ages. And th the narrative as it's presented runs something mm -hmm. like this in the middle ages, well, uh, the, the whole of society uh, in the early middle ages was taking this massive dive downhill, cultural institutions, civic order, religious, commitment were all in decline and society was saved by benedictines who retreated from mainstream society in this case physically retreated to isolated enclaves where they could preserve something like properly functioning social order and they let the society around them die and then they were in a position to be the seed from which the resurrected new order rose that's mm -hmm. basically the narrative and so benedict option is then a reference to not necessarily geographic retreat but various forms of conceptual or institutional sometimes geographic or social distancing oneself from the world trying to make oneself sequestered in in various ways not dependent upon the world's institutions economic social cultural educational so that if that goes to blazes which it looks like it is the church will outlast them and then be ready to plant the seed for the future and and your point is i'll paraphrase and then tell me yeah. if i'm overstating it that's kind of obvious it's what we should have been thinking about all along Perhaps it's slightly an overstatement and an oversimplification to say we should all do this in some blanket way. But it's actually not a bad idea. It just doesn't need to be called the Benedict option. It needs to be called um, uh, remaining, Christian. Pre remaining Christian, distinctively Christian in a world that is not distinctively Christian yet. So yes. is, is that Be, fair? Yes, being the church. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, of course, you know, this should be like normative Christian thinking. That's why right. I'm, that's why I say, with, you know, 
marketing on the top because this is this should be no brainer for us as Christians. Right. So let's think of some examples of this. I mean, the easiest one I can think of is in terms of education. Mm -hmm. uh, I say easy because both here in Fort Worth and most of the US, it's relatively easy to educate your children in the way you'd like to do so in the sense that there aren't legal restrictions on homeschooling mm -hmm. or on Christian education. I know there are regulations in some states and so on and so forth. Czech Republic similarly. Yes. That's right. In the UK, actually, it's similar, although it, there are fewer people doing it. So there are fewer resources, there are fewer Christian schools around. But okay, here's something like education. Now, why also is it, uh, this is um, easy pickings, because education really matters. Like mm -hmm. education is not just some other issue. Education is the future of every issue. Mm -hmm. Every cultural, social, ideological thing that matters is shaped in the future by education provided we include within that the education that the church itself provides mm -hmm. there's, a, yes. there's an ecclesial focus to that too but what you teach your kids like that really matters and if you love your kids and you want them not to swallow all the craziness that is being taught in uh, secular mainstream public schools and if you're able and most of us are not all most of us are able to provide something else for them well, the Benedict option then is like, well, we do not want to send our kids to the public schools because that would likely do them harm, whereas by God's grace, we might be able to do them some more good. Is that is that fair? Yes, it's pretty much fair. Right, And we, uh, and we didn't need the Benedict option to we, be written to give us that yeah, idea, right? Because Christians have been doing that for generations. Part of what ben, part of what Rod Dreher says, well, is we need this, you know, parallel polis. We need this alternative city. Well, that's the church, okay? We... Anybody heard of Augustine? Yes, yes. We are that alternative city. And mm. I would really recommend in this context reading men like Peter Lightheart, who emphasize that the church is the true city, that yes. we are the true humanity. And I would say that's where it starts. Because if we see ourselves as just the outsiders who maybe, you know, if we create our little communities, we will maybe somehow make it mm. through. Mm -hmm. That's not the mindset we are supposed to have that's not the image the scripture gives us right. we need to realize that the church is the central institution in this context it's right. that city and we go from there many of the applications will be similar live lives of personal holiness provide catechesis and education mm -hmm. for your children be prepared to help your christian brothers and sisters but when Two people do the same thing. It very often is not the same thing. Mm. So we first need to understand the centrality of the church, the centrality of the church as that city that's in the center of history, yes. and then go from there. And that's true everywhere. That's not true only in Augustine's time. Yeah. That's yeah. not true only in America. That's true everywhere. Right. Now, what's interesting about that is that also then answers the question which is left un addressed in many contemporary expositions of and summaries of the Benedict option. I left it unaddressed in my summary. And the question is this, okay, if we've stepped away from dependence upon the secular world in relation to some domains of life, at what point and in what ways do we cross back over that boundary? And the answer is not never. Mm -hmm. And it's not a yes or no. 
It's not, in, in other words, it's not we're totally immersed in the world and we're doing everything the world does, or we're totally out of the world and we're doing nothing that the world does. What we're going to have is thoughtfully articulated criteria for deciding at what point which people cross that boundary, so to speak. Yes. And so the classic example will be education again. Mm -hmm. I don't want my five-year-old daughter, my youngest daughter is now 16. I don't want my five-year-old daughter to be taught by a Muslim, even a well-meaning and, and nice Muslim. I, I want her to be taught by a Christian. I want her to be taught Christ in everything. But by the time my daughter is 16, and I pick my daughter specifically, so that you don't think I'm just talking about sons, although sons as well, but daughters, by the time they're 16, ought to be able to, all, all things being well, they ought to be able to meet with aspects of life that are articulated from a secular or non-Christian stance and be discerning enough to re at least realize there's something going on there. By the time uh, a young man or a young woman is 20 or 25 years old, they absolutely need to do that. Mm -hmm. Because you, you, all this talk about a parallel Christian economy seems to just ignore the laws of economics. You can't That's create. I mean, yep. in, in the parallel Christian economy, we can have all kinds of people making um, homemade honey and homemade butter and home-laid eggs, but who's making homemade smartphones? You know, we, we are inevitably interconnected with the world in which God has placed us. And the reason he's placed us there is to sanctify it. Mm -hmm. It's the hope is what you said in the previous podcast yes. we recorded. It's the sanctification flows outwards. And so once people have the clarity of mind and Christian maturity and wisdom and resilience to be agents of Christ's sanctification in different domains, we're going to be encouraging them to step out into the world and across that Benedictine boundary. And the question in this, and you know, we have mentioned it before, that what is contagious now is holiness and righteousness. Right. Do we believe we are light in the darkness? Yes, yes. or no? Yes. yes. Where there is light, darkness needs to flee. Hmm. And if we are faithful, you can read the covenant blessings that we have, for example, in Deuteronomy 28. If we are faithful, we have no reason to expect anything but God's blessing. Hmm. But... This retreatist mindset, that's not called faithfulness. We are to go out mm -hmm. and we are to disciple the nations. And yes, there can be tactical retreats, but closing us ourselves in our little mm -hmm. huddles, mm -hmm. that's not going to help. And especially, you know, since you mentioned, it's very nice to talk, well, we need to be separate from the world. Okay, but how? That which mm -hmm. separates us is the water of baptism and it's the Lord's Supper. We are separated by covenant yes, from them and not buy whether i'm willing to buy a chair from china or not yes or go to walmart for my groceries yeah and one of the things that i would mention in this that we need to realize because and that would be largely the recipe that augustine gives us mm -hmm. we need to realize that we have christ because we look and oh, oh the culture is going down the drain yeah it might be yes, might yes. be but guess what we have christ mm. And that's something they can never take from us. Mm. And if we, for the next couple of centuries, happen to be poor and persecuted, we have Christ and we win. And yeah. that's something that we need to train ourselves in. Yeah. You know, it might be more, it might be easier for us than for Americans with all your, all the luxuries that 
uh, Christian cultural previous centuries has mm. left previous, you with. Yes. But we need to realize the riches that I have are not mm. the car I have, the huge house, the schools that my kids may be or not able to go to. The riches that I have mm. are in Christ. Mm. And as long as I have Christ, I have everything and I have everything in him. And if we were willing and, and given the grace to really believe that and let that transform our mm. lives, we could let this mortal life go. Mm. We And, you know, we sing mighty fortress is our God, but do we believe it? Do we believe it? Yes. yes. Do we believe that if we have Christ, we are the richest people on yes, the planet? Yes, yes. And it's fascinating because, you know, uh, you know where this this kind of debate gets most hot, I think, is in connection with the sort of storm in a teacup woke mini revolutions that take place in the commercial sphere. So you'll have somebody who's who's in a, a workplace and it's just the latest ridiculous woke training system that they've got to embrace, and the company is slapping rainbow rainbow. Uh, graphics over the email avatars of all the employees yeah. and, and people are saying why why should i put up with this why didn't i go and find a christian company to work for and i guess i want to say two things i want to say look if you can find a christian guy to work for like god bless you go find that's okay it's not you're sinning by quitting working at this woke corporation and going to work for christ the truth um it services or whatever but to the person who doesn't have that option Remember, you do have the obligation to provide for your family and for yourself. And if you, if it's this company or no company, that's when I want to scroll back the video for two minutes and hear you say again, you have Christ. Like, do you believe that you are a light in this woke darkness? That there, there must be a way, if you are morally obligated to remain there in order to provide, there must be a way of being faithful here. Mm -hmm. So you're a grown-up now. Live like a grown-up. Live like a mature person. Live like one who is in Christ. And have. don't forget to be postman as soon as you engage in cultural conflict. Yes. Like realize that this might just be the arena, and I use the term advisedly, the arena of our persecution for men and women in the workplace to face the censure and the ridicule and the hatred of their employers and and fellow co-workers in this kind of way and that's how they stand for christ and that is according to paul receiving a gift because mm. in philippians one he says you were given not only to believe in christ but also, but also to suffer for him yeah it's been granted so, to you so to suffer. if we believe that suffering for christ is actually an honor that is granted to us how would yeah. that transform us and you know mm. Perhaps one last thing that I'd like to say. Sure. If we live un, under ungodly rulers, okay, hey, there's be plenty of those in the scripture. Look what counted as faithfulness under those. Mm. Look at what all the different people did under Ahab. Look at what all, all the different people did under Saul mm. and learn from them. Because there are many, 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 many ways to be faithful in an ungodly culture. Mm. And we are all in our unique places. And let's... When the Lord sent his disciples into the world, he didn't give them a simple list of five yeah, rules. Yeah. He told them to be wise, mm. to be pure, and to be wise as serpents yeah. or to be Shrewd. crafty as serpents. And yeah. that's what we need to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it, with all due respect to Rod Dreher, he's way too simplistic in this. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah. way more to Christian wisdom than mm. just, okay, let's get into our own little yeah. huddle. So um, one and a half cheers for the Benedict option for all the all the stuff that's kind of old as the hills. That's, that's good, but not particularly new. Um, the new stuff, which is the branding and the oversimplification, perhaps is not good. And uh, in one sense, wisdom is required precisely because all these situations are different. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get the soundbitey answer, at least not from us. Let's let's think through these things with nuance and clarity. And actually, that'll that'll make us bolder because what it will mean is some people stay in those places where it's miserable to work because you trust. It's back to Romans five, isn't it? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Um, we have 90 seconds before I need to be off doing something else, and I'm pretty sure that you do as well. So we're going to call a halt to this conversation, which I'd be happy to otherwise carry on all afternoon. Thank you, Pastor Proc, for yeah. being with us. Thank you very uh, you much blessed for having us, me. You blessed us greatly in your preaching, your ministry of the word. Uh, we've now recorded two podcasts, and I want to encourage you guys, if this is the first you've heard of Pastor Proc, go back and dig up all that other stuff. We'll put links on our website, allsaintskirk.com, allsaintskirk, K-I-R-K.com. And you can find all that stuff there. It's been great having you with us, brother. We hope you'll come back and visit us again sometime soon. But yep. for now, if you're on the podcast, the Lord bless you. And bye for now. Yep. God bless.